about 25 years ago at my rabbinical school interview, which if you have ever gone through a rabbinical school interview can only relate to how terrifying it is. The very first question I will never forget that I was asked as I sat down, was offered a glass of water, was let's just say you are invited by a rabbinic colleague to their synagogue in another city to speak on a Friday night at their services. Tell us, how would you decide what to talk about, Sydney? And I said, well, of course I would call my colleague and I would say, well, what have you talked about in the last few Shabbats? Then I would go to the local news and I would find out what it was that was happening actively in their general community. And then I would ask somebody from that Jewish community to explain to me what had been happening in the Jewish community so I could come up with something that was relevant to what was going on for them. And the person said, and? And I said, and that's what I would talk about. And they said, and you would relate it to the Torah portion of the week. And I said, well, of course, of course that, the Torah portion of the week, everybody knows that, right? It's rabbinical school. <clears throat> and then they let me go to rabbinical school. <laughs> At some point in the last 20 years of serving as a rabbi, I realized why it was so, so important to have the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life, to come back to each week and sustain us no matter what. No matter where you are in the world, each and every Jew is on the same page in the same book. When we come back to the Torah, we are coming back home and we come back to ourselves. The world can become topsy-turvy as it has been in the last few years, the last month, the last week, and yes, today. It can absolutely reek of injustice and even insanity and we are still taught to come back home no matter what, turn it and turn it. Everything is contained within it. You will find it right there. On a day when so many of us are incredulous at the political storm that has become an everyday part of our lives, still we come back and we turn to the Torah. And on this Shabbat, what does the Torah teach us? How can it lift us up on a day like this? It tells us we're starting at the very beginning in Bereshit, the story of the creation of the world. And I'm sure almost everybody here knows that in the story of the creation of the world, we are created, humanity. And so I'm just gonna ask you to turn to the person next to you around you and share with them in one or two sentences how you understand how were Adam and Eve created? How were human beings created? You have one minute, go. Okay, your minute is up. Imagine if every single Torah portion was that short. So, how many people here mentioned the name Adam? Mentioned the name Eve? Mentioned a rib? Okay, so almost everybody here mentioned a rib. Did anybody here mention a hermaphrodite? One person, Josh Kasdan in the back. You were referencing the Judeo-Christian norm that everybody knows, which is that first, Adam is created, and then there's a rib or a side that is taken from his body while he's asleep because he's lonely, and in it is created Eve, a helpmate, an Ezer Konegdo, a helpmate to help or work against him. 
That's the second story. That comes from Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is a very, very important story, but it is less known, and it's not very popular, and probably because it's very nuanced, and because it really begs us to ask the question, who was created first and why? The rabbis understood Genesis 1 to mean that humanity was created as one being. And I'll just read to you, Genesis 2, the one which you know, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made God a woman and brought her to the man. That's the story from Genesis 2. Most of us have never even read Genesis 1. Genesis 1 reads, and I'm not making this up, by the way, just because I'm a feminist. This comes from the Torah, chapter 1. And God said, let us make humanity, human being, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created human in God's own image. In the image of God, God created it, male and female, God created them. In the image of God, God created it, male and female, God created them. That's story one. The rabbis understood that Adam was created as an intersexed being, as a hermaphrodite, singular in one respect, plural in another. Rabbi Jeremiah ben Elazar held that Adam was an androgen, and Rabbi Samuel bar Nachman had that, said that Adam was more like conjoined male and female twins. And here's the actual section from Bereshit Rabbah. Said Rabbi Yirmiyehu ben Elazar, in the hour when the Holy One created the first human, God created this human being as an androgen, male and female. He created this person, a double-faced and double-backed being, sawed him in half and made a back here and a back there, a front here and a front there. So instead of God creating man and from the rib creating woman, in the first story of creation, it is very, very difficult to understand this because Many of us have not heard this before. Chapter 1 says, God created one being, and because God was God, God took this being and split it in half. And that is how humanity was created. First as a single being, and then their spirits and their bodies were separated into two. That's a really different story, isn't it? How many people here have heard that story before? Very few people. The version that the Judeo-Christian world is based upon is obviously much more popular than chapter one. But the question then is, has to be asked, why is it so difficult to believe that first story and why do so few people actually even hear about it? Now just to be sure that you understand, the Torah is full of contradictions. This story in Genesis one and two, where first one being is created and split into two, and then Adam and Eve are created later, it's not the only time in the Torah when there are contradictions. In fact, the next story, which is Parshat Noah, the story of the flood, there are totally different contradictions. Instead of being chapter one and chapter two, the bi biblical editors took the two stories and they went like this, and then they put them together and they thought maybe we wouldn't notice, but there are two totally different authors for the book of Noah, and they're written almost like this, instead of side by side. Genesis 1 is the story that is closer to and more easy for us to understand when it comes to evolution. And it also points to what it would be like if we understood that humanity was created as one being that was split in two. One of my uh, colleagues, whose name is Rabbi Mark Samoth, 
wrote about these two contradictions and says that many rabbis have tried to reconcile the two and many, many people who are trying to deter us from believing that God wrote the Torah says, see, there's the hand of humanity in every single chapter. These are contradictions, so people must have written them. But I really love what Rabbi Mark Samoth says. He says, the seduction of Eve by the serpent is the prototype of every seduction known to human being. Anyone who claims to have never been seduced into doing something that he or she should not have done is simply a liar. When we get caught, our instinct is to blame someone else. Not that someone else is not guilty, but we are ultimately responsible for our actions. And then he talks about what happened between Adam and Eve and the book of, in the book about the tree of knowledge. He says, is there anything more dangerous than knowledge? And the most dangerous knowledge of all is knowing right from wrong, because this is the launch pad of rationalization. Most of the time we do wrong because we are able to convince ourselves that it is okay. If we wouldn't know wrong from right, we would be like animals, operating purely on instinct. And yes, we would probably be better off in some ways. But the price of such well-being is the abdication of choice and losing the pleasures and rewards of having made the right decisions on our own by defying temptation and rationalization. And finally, he teaches about paradise, the place of tomorrow. He says, paradise is not a place, it is a moment. A perfect situation is not sustainable. Exile is inevitable. We value our brief moments of paradise precisely because they are so ephemeral. They are vacations from reality. We value our health because it is fleeting. We value our loves because they exist in time, not in space. We only value our material possessions if they were not always ours and can be lost in a moment. This perhaps is why music is so consummately important. Because only music has the capacity to elev us, elevate us into a state of utter bliss. Yet because it exists purely in time, it is not only ephemeral, but fleeting. Such is the nature of paradise. One cannot freeze that moment or return to it except as a memory or of a hope. So where do we find hope today? When I think about this story, I wonder what if from the very beginning, chapter two was like an addendum to chapter one? What would it be like between women and men today if from the very beginning, from our Torah, the place that Judeo-Christians refer to when we talk about women's rights and men's rights, when we talk about relationships between women and men. And I'll tell you that the rabbis tried to figure out actually how to get from where we were to where we are. And they actually said that God understood that Adam was gonna end up with Eve, but God created first another wife for Adam before God created Eve. Does anybody know who that wife was? Lilith. And Lilith um, becomes a demon, and she flies off to go and kill children and men, according to the rabbis, because why? She argued too much with her husband. Um, so that was the lesson that the rabbis came up with, that if you stand up for yourself, if you argue too much, you are somehow sent away, um, and, you be, and you become a demon. Um, so I also want to point to the fact that from this interpretation, many of our commentators have said that the story lends or tells us, teaches us, that it's very important, according to the tradition, that men have submissive wives. It says it, 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 says it in our tradition. I'm going to read it to you. 
The 11th century commentator Rashi emphasized the importance of a submissive wife, explaining that the command in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply is given to the male only, and the, the phrase subdue it, where the it is gendered female in Hebrew, likely refers to the earth, which is gendered female. And so when it says that go forth and multiply, that's for men, but subdue it should be read as subdue her. Nachmanides, writing in the 13th century, agreed about women's subordination, but disagreed with Rashi. He said that women's subordination is a consequence of her punishment and not a part of the created order. Now, why on a day like today, as your rabbi, would I, would I talk about this? I talk about this because it's a reality, because what's happening in this country between women and men is real, and it's happening, and we turn back so often to a tradition that for thousands of years, have wanted women to be submissive. But I'm a hopeful person. Where's the hope? The hope comes from the very, very first word of this parsha. Tomorrow morning, all over the world, Jews are going to be reading Bereshit, the story of the beginning of the creation of the world. And I stand here today after being in Italy this past week, officiating at the wedding of one of our congregants, and I decided it was Sukkot, so I should go to synagogue on Sukkot. And I walked into the synagogue, and I was amazed because it was an Orthodox synagogue, the only one in Florence, and I sat down, and men and women were actually sitting in the sanctuary, in the same sanctuary, and I thought, that's strange. And then the rabbi closed the book, because of course I came 10 minutes before the end of services, and, um, a young man in a big talit came over and he said to me in broken English, you go. I said, excuse me? He said, you go. You can go. Go now. And I looked at him and I realized he was telling me, go stand behind the wall. Here I am, a rabbi of a congregation that has about 5,000 members. This rabbi in Florence barely has a minion and one of his congregants came up to me and told me to go stand behind the wall. So if we wonder about where we have come from and where we're going, we have to understand it's our responsibility to make change, because it's not gonna happen if we keep visiting places that are turning backwards. The word bereshit does not mean in the beginning. The word bereshit means in a beginning. If it was in the beginning, it would say bareshit. But it never says that. You open the Torah and you read the first word. Everybody say, Bereshit. Bereshit means in a beginning. It means that as human beings, we are partners with God on this planet. And we can subdue it or subdue her, or we can till and tend it. And we have the obligation in this new beginning, which starts tomorrow and next year and the next Shabbat and the next day, that if we see that there's something wrong, that we write it. And we may feel like there is a darkness that has descended, but our Torah says, turn it and turn it. Come to a place where you are at a beginning in your own life and open up to whatever light is in front of you. Shabbat Shalom.